Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about impeachment, just the beginning. Helen Raleigh, author of Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired, will be joining us and show me your COVID papers. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. As you all likely know, in Washington, D.C. today, the United States Senate is engaged in their first kind of full day of the second impeachment effort of President Trump. We've talked about many different aspects of this question, including whether or not it's even constitutional to try to impeach in the Senate, which is the Constitution says the Senate's job is to remove. So can you remove someone who's already not in office? One constitutional question among many. But what I wanted to hit on today in today's first five are a couple of factors making this more difficult for the people pressing this impeachment difficult in terms of facts coming to the surface. One is a brief clip I sent to Matt, the very wonderful producer. Uh, I said, sent him a clip of Mark Meadows being interviewed uh, over the weekend, in which he told said something which seems like logic should say, we'll kind of end the discussion, but have Matt play that clip for you. But we also know this, help was offered multiple times, not just in January, but throughout the summer with the D.C. mayor saying that the president stood by willing to offer a National Guard assistance, other assistance, and often, in fact, every time was rebuked and said, no, we can go it alone. And so they, they do need to get to the bottom of it, and hopefully we'll, we'll see that in the very near future. One thing he's talking about, he says uh, that we're going to get to the bottom of it, is more and more inquiry about why it is that the offers of assistance to the Capitol Police, the Washington, D.C. police, from the Trump administration, in fact, this story was Trump had offered to deploy 10,000 National Guard troops to D.C. ahead of January 6th, which is inconsistent with the argument the left is trying to make, the Democrats trying to make, that Trump incited a riot that he intended, he caused the people who showed up and planned it ahead of time, caused it ahead of time, planned to have them show up on January 6th uh, at the Capitol, engage in the violence there, holding him responsible for the conduct of the rioters of all political backgrounds. That little factoid, very interesting how the left will respond to that. But the deeper point I want to hit in today's first five is this. There is a piece in the New York Times today, and I don't normally read the New York Times, but a piece in the New York Times that was basically making the argument that what is on trial in this impeachment trial in the Senate is not really so much the words that President Trump used. Everyone knows he said peacefully and patriotically, speaking to the audience on January 6th in Washington, peacefully and patriotically make your way to the Capitol. What this New York Times writer and is, is saying, and really echoing the thinking of a lot of people on the left, he's basically saying that they're gonna be looking uh, the, the people who engage in the prosecution, the Democrat Party, will be looking at President Trump's speaking style. That his speaking style is at the heart of the legal arguments they are making. And they make references in this piece in the New York Times, for example, that at one point during the course of this uh, discussion between November 3rd and January 6th, 
with respect to whether or not election fraud occurred in some speech, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, one of the president's attorneys, had urged the crowd to conduct a trial by combat to resolve the election. Obviously a turn of phrase, but the New York Times is using this as an example of the kind of language that maybe they ought to be able to talk about in, in terms of whether they can actually find culpability of the president sufficient to convict him in the Senate of inciting, of incitement, and other congressional Republicans, and Trump at some point in the course of uh, his various remarks over this time period, referred to Republicans who were objecting to the results uh, as warriors, the people who were standing up for him and saying, you have to send some of these results, which the states themselves are now disputing, people in Congress should send those results back. And so these, this kind of language, and this is what, one of the points I've been making several times recently, again, recently as yesterday. If we start to criminalize speech or start to make speech like is very commonly used in America in the course of discussing political issues, the, the battle for the heart and soul of America, I believe that was one of the uh, terms that Biden used in one of his campaign speeches. This is a battle for the heart and soul of America. Is that incitement? Does that incite people who support him? We're in very dangerous territory in America because we have actually, based on the, because of the wisdom of our founders, enshrined in the Constitution the idea that we actually have freedom of speech. It's not absolute, and it's good it's not absolute. You can't defame people. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. A series of objections, uh, a series of exceptions to the notion of free speech. But we're, why we're entering dangerous territory here is because you're, the American left is realizing they can take commonly used terms, commonly used language, and contort it into criminal liability, contort it into language that is sufficient to justify the Senate and the impeachment trial voting to remove the president. Now, to be very clear, they know they can't. They, they know they can't get 17 votes of Republicans. And so this is indeed just a freak show. It's just a, it's just a um, street parade kind of uh, performance in the United States Senate because they don't really think they can remove the president, not only because he's not president anymore, but because they can't get the votes they need in the Senate. But this, the Democrats at this point are at the place where they have committed they're going to pursue this. They have a lathered up American left looking for yet another you know, um, coffin peg in the president's coffin because they've got a second impeachment against him. And so they feel like they've got to go forward, even though they won't, knowing they won't win. So what they're really going forward to, to do, the purpose is political points. The purpose is to cement the ending of the Trump legacy. I used the term yesterday, uh, the shunning of the president. It is to send the message to America, to President Trump, to his supporters, that Trump is gone and will never come back. He may never run again. And even more importantly, the Trump agenda is gone. It's a message of the Democrats, the American people. Not only is Trump not, he doesn't exist. We're shunning him. He doesn't even exist as a person. His supporters are to be ignored and his agenda will never happen. Uh, last thing, a very important thing on this closing, uh, as I uh, wrap up the first five, there was a clip of Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who was one of the few Republicans who voted for impeachment in the U.S. House. I want to ask Matt the Wonderful to play that clip and then we'll close up this first five.
that the Senate trial is a snapshot. There is a massive criminal investigation underway. There will be a massive criminal investigation of everything that happened uh, on January 6th and in the days before. People will want to know exactly what the president was doing. They will want to know, for example, whether the tweet that he sent out calling Vice President Pence a coward uh, while the attack was underway, whether that tweet, for example, was a, a premeditated effort to provoke violence. There are a lot of questions that have to be answered, and there will be many, many criminal investigations investigations, looking at every aspect of this, at everyone who was involved, uh, as there should be. But Okay, that is Liz Cheney. You might think she's a Democrat, she's, or she's an alleged Republican, but I want you to hear what she's saying. The president sent out a tweet referring to Vice President Pence as being cowardly, which, you know, a lot of people thought he should have, he, Vice President Pence, should have exercised his arguable authority on January 6th and voted or directed some of the electoral college votes to go back to the states. Other people thought he should not. Unsettled legal territory, no one knows the answer whether he was permitted to do that. He, Vice President Pence, chose not to do that. So what, what she is saying is the idea that the president used the term coward in a tweet could be actually considered to be part of the evidence that should, that is considered as to whether the, or not the president incited a riot, committed it, violated the insurrection, or, or committed insurrection, or incited a riot at the Capitol. People, this is very dangerous territory. This is the left grabbing onto speech they don't like. They don't like the president, first of all, questioning the outcome of the election. They've made that clear. No one may speak about the outcome of the election. No one may raise election fraud or vote fraud. But she is pointing to that tweet, one word in a tweet, as possible evidence, along with many other things. She talks about a vast investigation of everything President Trump said and did and tweeted. And people, everybody knows what President Trump tweeted. Everyone knows what he said. There really weren't very many secrets about President Trump. He put everything he had out there. What you're seeing is the vilification of a former president by the party now in power, saying not only is he out of power, but he must be silenced, eviscerated, and we're looking for any reason we can to completely destroy him, his followers, and his agenda. A very scary time in America indeed. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. I mentioned at the start of the show, we have a guest joining us, and I just love it. Uh, first of all, I'll show you her book. This is her book. Uh, it's called Backlash. You can see that and her name is Helen Raleigh. Backlash is the book, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. And very briefly, oh, oh, that's a much better image. Thank you. There's the book. It's a beautiful cover, by the way, beautiful cover. Um, but I want to talk briefly about Helen Raleigh. Uh, she was born in China, came to the United States as a student in 1996. She's a naturalized citizen here in America. Her first book, which as I was reading about this this morning, I'm thinking this is the book I want to read next. Her first book, Confucius Never Said, uh, was a book published in 2015, which basically tracks her family's four generations of her family and their journey from repression and poverty in China to freedom and prosperity in America. But the reason I thought it sounded so interesting was it talks about her family's lives in China having overlapped with many significant historical events taking place in China such as the founding of communist China in 1949, the Great Chinese Famine, the Cultural Revolution, and the economic reforms starting from 1980. So that's not a great book. And she has another book, uh, which is called The Broken Welcome Mat, about America's immigration system. But this book, which we'll be talking about today, called Backlash, is about how China's... Con I mean, there's so many things it's about, I can't even tell you. A lot of history about of China, 
explanation of their culture, their governance, the way the Communist Party thinks. And in this book, she actually goes into a lot of questions that touch on today's uh, American foreign policy. So we're going to talk with Helen Raleigh, and we have her, I believe, on Skype to talk about her new book, Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. And there she is. Hi, Helen. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm well, and I'm so happy to see you. Okay, so I have uh, a lot of questions about your book, and I want to just dive right in, okay? And okay. Then we, okay, so to start with, um, your book, I, I like that it is divided in parts. Very logical. It's very helpful. Um, and I, 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 one of the early, early things I want to hit on, and we've talked about this on my show before with other scholars related to China, but I want to have you tell our listeners again, or tell them in, in your view, this view of people, especially Xi Jinping now, the leader in China, but historically also, anciently historically, this view among some Chinese people that the Chinese people themselves are intended to be essentially the one world power. They, they, are, they are intended ultimately to be to, to have, um, uh, the rulers of the world. And I know that sounds a dramatic way to say it. Maybe you can explain it better. But there's a philosophy there I'd love to have you explain. Right. So... In China's ancient feudal system, the emperor was considered the son of the heaven. He's the connection, divine connection between heaven and everything on earth. And so the word China in Chinese means the center. So there's, there is a belief that China um, is supposed to be the center of the universe. And that the ruler, the emperor, is the ruler of the universe. And so obviously in the last 100 years that uh, through the opium war and through the, you know, uh, communist rules that the China's economies and the national power deteriorated. But now the communist leader Xi Jinping used the so-called Chinese uh, China dream, basically want to reclaim this um, vision that uh, China should replace United States as a rightful place for China, for communist China, is to be the next world hegemon and be the you know create the new world order that is centered around China. It is truly amazing because I think that there was, um, you know, America spent a long period of time in terms of our foreign policy trying to mm -hmm. bring China, communist China, kind of. Uh, onto the um, world playing field more, thinking that if there were more interaction, more trade, more negotiation, all that, that we would help China bring uh, bring itself kind of more into the Western world and maybe um, inspire the Communist Party leaders to uh, mm -hmm. tamp down on communism, to open their economy, their society more. And that really didn't work. That really backfired. Can you explain why that was, why that didn't work with China? Well, because the it was based this approach that the engagement somehow will bring a natural, more democratic, liberal change is based on illusion. It's based on misunderstanding of the true nature of the Communist Party. So the Chinese Communist Party is ideologically uh, histor and historically hostile to the liberal world order, and it believed that the liberal world order is a threat to the Communist Party's survival. And to the Communist Party, there's nothing is more important than its survival. And we know, based on we look at the history of China, history of Soviet Union, the Communist rule is very authoritarian, sometimes 
going into totalitarian. So it's a very different ideology compared to totalitarianism. Therefore, no matter how much engagement that the West liberal you know, countries that try to engage with China, no matter how much commerce we have, which is very obvious now that after 30 years of economic engagement, China today, it, you know, China used 30 years ago, communist China was a poor, very poor and weak authoritarian state. And today, the communist China is a very rich and a powerful authoritarian state. So the, the economic picture changed, but the, the underlying true nature of the party and the regime has not changed. And unfortunately, even today, not many politicians and foreign policy experts has realized that. Okay, there was a speech given by Mike Pompeo, um, and uh, who was President Trump's um, Secretary of State. He gave it last July, and you wrote about it in your book. And, and I, it's so interesting, you know, all the political philosophy tying into then foreign policy. What, what what is the smart thing for America to do? But Pompeo gave a speech on July 23rd, and he basically talked. It was in it was in connection with the U.S. government having ordered the closing of the Communist China of, of the consulate in Houston. Uh, the China consulate in Houston. And the speech basically, uh, he talked about the idea um, that the uh, past four decades of blind engagement policy toward China were a failure. And he summarized the Trump administration's new China policy in two words, induce change. President Reagan's famous phrase, trust but verify, to distrust and verify. Did you, and I, I'm sure you've been watching American politics and, and how different administrations mm -hmm. deal with China. Did you feel like President Trump's term uh, with Mike Pompeo as his Secretary of State, did you feel that, or, that they were too harsh on China and that they, set, that they harmed uh, America's relation with China by President Trump being more, in a variety of ways, more firm with China? Was that a good thing or a bad thing for us to do? Well, so President Trump, the Trump administration's uh, foreign policy approach to China is that was definitely a 180 sh uh, degree of shift compared to previous uh, uh, previous administrations from Nixon and onward. And so whether you say it's a harsh, whether, whether his China policy is harsh, it depends on, you know, the, you need to put it in the historical context. We just discussed earlier that the, the previous administration, whether Demo under Democrats or Republicans, this whole engagement first, and let's talk about the economic, uh, you know, economic uh, uh, economic approach, and let's talk about trade. Let's focus on commerce, you know, human rights ideology. Those things can come separately, which many times they never come. So throughout those three decades of this misguided approach that it's it basically it was a is a it is a, was a failure because today's china is much again it, like i said it's a much uh, powerful rich but still authoritarian and because it's so rich and powerful today's china has not communist china has now more leverage to use its economic coercion and backed by military growing military power to force uh, United States and our allies, our liberal allies, to compel to uh, China's will, the uh, Communist Party's will. And so I, I believe that the Trump administration recognized that. And they were the first administration that willing to take a stand. And basically, the United States was the only, is, is still the only country who, in terms of economic power and the military power, that is comparable to China, that, that has the ability 
to take a stand. And so the Trump administration had the political will, and they also recognize they brought this realism into foreign policy that has been lacking for the last 30 years foreign policy approach. And so what they're doing, what they did, I believe, is um, uh, it was necessary. Uh, and there are also some uh, success there that uh, unfortunately has been ignored by um, mainstream media. Can you elaborate that? What success do you believe flowed from the Trump policies toward China that the media hasn't reported? Okay, so let's talk about trade. You know, the trade war, many liberals hated it, and the Chamber of Commerce hated it, and many U.S. corporations hated it. And But, you know, the trade the trade was is one of the few, very few tools we have nowadays to basically compel China to change its behaviors, you know, because... There's so many people complained about, you know, technology theft, forced the technology transfer, and China still keep a lot of sectors on, closed to foreign investors. And so through the trade war, the Trump administration basically up the ante. And every time, you know, the Trump administration imposed a new round of uh, tariff, China initially retaliated. But because China runs a huge trade surplus with the United States, after several rounds of back and forth, China, China ran out of ammunition. So eventually, China and the United States came to agree with a, a, a level one, a phase one, I should say, phase one trade agreement. That was actually a very good trade agreement. I wrote an article about it. Uh, unfortunately, not everything the trade agreement was able to carry it out because it was interrupted by the pandemic. But even with that interruption, most recently, that uh, China reported, uh, and also U.S. Commerce reported, that the trade deficit, U.S. trade deficit with, uh, with China has dropped billions of dollars. You would not hear, you know, you probably haven't heard any mainstream media report that because all they want to report was Trump's trade policy, trade war was <laughs> a failure. But mm. it was actually the first time in decades the U.S. trade deficit against China dropped billions, billions of dollars. So and not only that, it also forced China to change you know, some behaviors. So that's one example of success. And if you want to know more, there are other examples of success about in the human rights front as well. Okay, we have so many directions to go, I'm taking notes here. Okay, one thing I want to uh, be sure and, and get clear about, we talked about the, uh, the mindset or the mission of some people who embrace an ancient Chinese doctrine of the notion that the Chinese people should rule. And then the communists, today's communist party, Xi Jinping and his uh, communist party, believe in that notion. And it's, it's mixed in with communism and the Chinese people as the intended future rulers of the world. Before I ask my question, is that accurate? Is well, it's not entirely accurate because when we talk about China, I think the Secretary Pompeo has has done a really good job. You know, he's my favorite in the Trump administration. Me too. That he always, he always, yeah, he always separate the Communist Party versus the Chinese people. I mean, when it's come to Chinese people, number one, you know, it, they are proud people because it had China has a great civilization lasted for thousands of years. So naturally, you know, they have right to be proud. And secondly majority of the Chinese people are victims of the authoritarian rule of the Communist Party. You know, if you read my first book, Confucius Never Said, I talk about the great China, Chinese famine. Within three years, 
an estimate of 40 million Chinese people starving to death. So Chinese people are suffer at the first hand. They are the victim of the Communist Party. So when we talk about the, the evil of the party, the, the ideology of the party, basically the Communist Party hijacked the Chinese culture and they took advantage of the people's pride and they used this to, to create this hodgepodge of China dream that, that based, but they want to recreate this wor new world order that's not necessarily based on chi traditional Chinese culture, but based on this communist, re you know, communist uh, view that you know the communist party will call the shots. You know, it's going to be a very illiberal world order. So we should make that distinction between the Chinese people versus the communist party. Helen, I'm glad you said that. In case our listeners are tuning in in the middle, I want to be sure and tell you, we're speaking with Helen Raleigh, who wrote Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. She's the author. We have many more questions. I just want to be sure in case you tune in the middle. Um, so, but Helen, I'm sorry, I didn't ask my question well because I'm completely agreeing with you. And that's one question I wanted to go down was the Chinese people themselves, the, the, the millions of, of uh, billions of people who live in China, the vast number of them have no role in the Chinese Communist Party, have no power, have no say, and really are not responsible for any of the misdeeds of the Chinese Communist Party. They, it's the Communist Party itself as ruler is extremely repressive. And, mm -hmm. and so it's very, I could not agree more. It's very important to distinguish the communist people. What I was trying to ask earlier was this mission that some people accepted from ancient China, the idea that Chinese people should eventually rule the world, it's become mixed up in the or combined in the Xi Jinping current Chinese, Chinese Communist Party. It's a Chinese people and communism or the Chinese party and communism that is intended itself to become controlling. I mean, it's not I mean, it's the spread right. of communism at the core. OK, so here's what I want to get at. Yeah. So they ha now have this. Um, we talk on the show numerous times about this one belt, one road initiative. And this idea of the way in which China, uh, Communist China, or the Chinese Communist Party, is trying to spread communism. And it is through something that actually sounded kind of friendly and good in the beginning from the American perspective. It's kind of reassert the Silk Road and, and you know, have that be an avenue. But can you explain how this Chinese initiative, One Belt and One Road, what it is and how it's being used to actually spread China's um, world goal of expanding its power? Right, so this uh, One Belt, One Road, the revival of the Asian the, uh, Silk Road uh, w was uh, initially um, American idea, first promoted by uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, but because the, uh, the Obama administration did not provide, want to provide any fundings to it, so the idea kind of naturally died. But like so many things, you know, a good idea came out that Americans immediately got picked up by uh, the Chinese Communist Party, especially by its leader, Xi Jinping. He immediately saw, you know, with China's economic power, this uh, One Belt, One Road project can become a great tool to advance China's geopolitical influence as well as economic power worldwide. So basically, this uh, initiative consists of one, uh, two, two routes. One is a land route connecting from uh, China through the land, through central China to uh, Middle East, then all the way to Europe. And then there's another route is through the sea route, same thing through the ocean uh, from chi connecting China all the way to Africa. And the way it works is, um, you know, China set up a development bank and there are many countries signed up to the initiative. So basically the way it works is uh, China will go to a country and say, well, you know, you need a port. And obviously build a port costs a lot of money. 
and we will give you low interest financing from Chinese state-owned bank. And we'll, uh, but as a condition, you have to hire a Chinese state, you know, a company to be, to build it. And of course, you know, we'll help you to boost the local economy. But it's all, you know, BS because when you when the country, the host country, hired the Chinese state company, what they do is they're gonna bring their uh, Chinese workers from China to work in on their land, and also uh, they're gonna bring they're gonna import materials like uh, you know cement, steel, concrete, all those things. China has overcapacity anyway, so they're gonna bring all those. Basically, the the host country really just provide a location. Everything else was provided by was provided by China, and those infrastructure project usually is very expensive. Even though it's a low interest loan, but still it costs a lot of money. And so in the end, once the port was uh, is built, the countries cannot pay the back because because yeah. mostly these countries are small developing countries. They couldn't pay the back. Then the Chinese government will come in to say, you know what, you don't have to pay the back. Uh, but in you know, in exchange for your loan forgiveness, you you're gonna let me occupy or so supposed to lease this port for 99 years. This is exactly what happened to Sri Lanka. So basically, uh, basically China used the land in Sri Lanka, build a port, Chinese military and the Chinese merchant ships can use, and also give them access to Indian Ocean that China doesn't have access to. Mm -hmm. So 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 you can see just from this one example, you know why this is a, such a project that's um is the Chinese government you know is willing to support. It helps it help uh, sustain employment for Chinese workers. It help expand the markets for Chinese companies and also create markets for excessive capacities, production capacities in China. And also, it gave China strategic locations it didn't have, right? And it enabled China to be able to move its uh, merchants as well as especially military, gives them a new post they can move around the world. And because the countries is trapped in debt, there are you know the Chinese government can demand them so many more in the future. They basically this this, this uh, poor countries became a vassal state. Yes, and it's all part of a path of expanding China's hegemony, control. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Tr tr truly amazing. More strategic than uh, than uh, people realize. I think um, I, I do have a bunch of things I want to be sure and hit with you there because this is so interesting. I mean, America has begun studying China more than ever. I think in the last maybe twelve years, as their role in various international things um, occurs, and then of course in the last mm -hmm. four years. So I want to briefly hit on uh, the social credit system there. And, you know, I, I did a show, it's a couple of years ago, I think, and I was talking about the social credit system and someone commented, oh, that is not really a big deal. I live in China, it's no big deal. You're exaggerating it. So how impactful, how harmful, what, what is it all about, the social credit system there? Well, first of all, the, the social credit system in China is different from the credit system we have here. The credit system we have here are mostly based on your financial uh, behavior and transaction history to determine if you are, you know, credit worthy to, you know, to to obtain more new loans. But in China, the social credit system, they measure everything. They they measure not only just your financial behavior, but also measure like, you know, did you run a red light? Um, you know, did did you um, cross uh, cross the street illegally? 
but they also measure things like did you post anything that the the government uh, you know criticizing the government um, you know did you have uh, overseas connections with people who um, you know are dissidents of the Chinese government so it's much more com comprehensive and they also use they also use the, a lot of data is collected from like surveillance cameras everywhere the, through the facial recognition and it's the punishment the reward and the punishment can be especially, especially the punishment can be especially excruciating. For example, if you post something on China's internet, criticizing the Chinese government, you know, they're gonna take down your social credit score, then you can be subjected to, you may not be able to get a promotion, your kids may not get you a good school district, you may not be able to borrow money, you know, with a good interest, or they may not lend you any money at all, even you're willing to pay high interest. But most, worst of all, you may not be able to travel. You cannot, you're, you're forbidden to buy a train ticket. You're forbidden to buy an airline ticket. You're basically stuck. You're basically be ostracized by the society. So it's something very scary. It's the 1984, the book 1984, it's George Orwell's nightmare that's been digitalized and presented. And so it keeps 1.4 billion people under the tight fist control of the uh, Communist Party. For a way for them to suppress dissent, so it is a very scary system. People who say it's no big deal, they really do not know anything about it. I'm so glad to have that explanation. It is. It's honestly kind of giving me chills thinking about it. It's like 1984. I want to turn now to the COVID uh, crisis we've had, the pandemic in this world. Um, I noticed that there was a um, there was an announcement today um, that the WHO, World Health Organization, the WHO team uh, has concluded their investigation in China and says coronavirus is unlikely to have leaked from a China lab. And uh, Helen, I found one of your tweets. I sent to Matt, the wonderful producer, if you can put that tweet up. You tweeted about that. Um, I think I sent it to him. Yeah, okay. So the tweet from Associated Press says, breaking, expert with World Health Organization Wuhan says, coronavirus leaked from a Chinese lab, unlikely, most probably jumped to human, the intermediary species, you responded, this shouldn't come as a surprise. Given World Health Organization's history of shameful kowtowing to Beijing, we shouldn't expect a so-called investigation in Wuhan is anything but a farce. Can you tell me why you, what you're, what, why you put that up there? What is your perception of the World Health Organization investigating Wuhan as to the, COVID, the source of the COVID? Well, in that trade, I also linked an article I wrote about WHO's behavior from the last... Uh, uh, February, when in the early days of the pandemic, basically, uh, and, and also there's a chapter about the WHO's behavior in the book. I consider WHO is one of the victims of the pandemic because it totally lost its credibility um, in this pandemic, just based on how they kowtowing to Beijing. You know, especially in the early days, remember the WHO's director, uh, even with everybody urging them to declare emergency, to declare this is a pandemic, and he waited for almost a month to declare the pandemic. And even though there, are, there has been clear evidence that the Communist Party covered up uh, the, the truth, the facts about the virus, they were suppressing of early whistleblowers. They were suppressing, you know, discussions on the internet about this virus, you know, in those early weeks. And yet, WHO's director. Con consistently uh, couldn't stop praising about the, the China being, um, you know, transparent and being open, even though we learned later from Reuters report that, uh, you know, 
while the director was praising Beijing out in the open, their scientists and experts were complaining about how little information they're receiving from China. I mean, based on the WHO's rules, you know, any country is legally obligated to share those information about the virus as soon as they can and with full transparency, something that China did not do, uh, especially in those early days of the pandemic. So uh, for WHO now to, you know, to say, well, they didn't find anything, you know, it's expected, you know, because it took them a year to, before China even permitted them, allowed them to even go there. And I also know that during their trip in Wuhan, you know, they spent the time to visit the museum, you know, after everything's already been scrubbed, you know, yeah. So after after all the labs being scrubbed, you know, after the market has been scrubbed, I'm, I'm surprised they, they, you know, they, they, they are going to find anything. So yeah, I, I, I just think that this is totally farce at all. Well said, last question. Honestly, this is so fun, I could do it all day, but last question for this time. So you grew up in China. You're a, clearly a student of the Chinese Communist Party, aware of the impact of culture, uh, by uh, mm -hmm. socialist slash communist policies and ideology, watching what's happening in China. Are you concerned about any trends you see in America today in our political scene that seem to be more embracing of socialism um, and, and maybe even further left than socialism? Do, do you see uh, trends that you're concerned about in America today? Oh, yes, absolutely. I see so many. I'm really disheartened. Um, I'm concerned that the United, the illiberal movement in the United States is making the United States more and more resemble the countries I left behind, you know, the authoritarian regime. Just, just for example, the increasing intolerance of dissenting voices. You know, uh, one of the lessons we should learn from COVID-19 is the fact that China suppressed descending voices, uh, it, it, it's one way to cover it up. You know, had China be more open and transparent, we probably would not have a global pandemic. And yet that, uh, that's a lesson failed with the American liberals. And today you see they want to uh, blacklisting, not just the uh, um, people who committed riot. You know, I, I totally support the punish people who committed riots. But they also want to blacklisting all the Trump officials. They want to blacklist the Republicans, and they want to, you know, get the Fox News off the off the air, get the Newsmax off the air. They do not have any tolerance for dissenting voice. And also, this whole woke movement, this whole struggle session, we see more and more struggle session even happened not just with the conservatives, but also happened with the liberals themselves, that somebody's not woke enough, like this New York Times um, science, science reporter, that he just repeated a racial slur in a question, in his, you know, try to understand the question. He, he, he was forced to resign. And the letter he wrote is no different. He used the same kind of language that a uh, Chinese has to do self-confession in China. So I see more and more resemblance of this illiberal movement to a authoritarian, you know, trend. And it's, it's just really, really worrisome. And, you know, one thing America has that we have is that, as you mentioned at your beginning, is the freedom of speech. That is so important. That is one of the foundation, a pillar of our free society. You know, we can have a, a debate of different ideas. We don't always have to agree, but the fact that we have uh, different ideas, that all ideas flourishing and may the best ideas win, that's what has prompted our country 
to prosper, to be so successful the last more than 200 years. And if we lose that, we're going to lose our liberty and the freedom, you know, in no time. Helen Raleigh, that was a beautiful answer, and thank you so very much. I also meant to commend you. I'm going to show our listeners again your book, Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. I want to tell you, there is a much better picture. Okay, tell you, my very fine listeners and friends, it is a, it is a serious substance and great read. I mean, it is a, it's so well written. Helen, I want to commend you on your writing, your scope of history, the, it's footnoted. It is just a pleasure to read. So, Helen Raleigh, I hope to come on again sometime, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Just great to see you. Okay, great book. Y'all ought to get it. Okay, one last thing today. We're closing out our show today. Um, I want I, I call this um, segment, uh, Show Me Your COVID Papers. And I want to just start by saying there was an interview with Pete Buttigieg, who you likely recall ran for president. Um, and now he is serving in the Biden administration um, as their uh, uh, secretary, transportation secretary, transportation secretary. He was interviewed recently and asked Matt the Wonderful to play this short clip of Pete Buttigieg, and I'll tell you what I think about it. What do you think of requiring a COVID test before someone flies even domestically? Well, there's an active conversation with the CDC right now. What I can tell you is it's going to be guided by data, by science, by medicine, and by the input of the people who are actually going to have to uh, carry this out. But here's the thing. The, the safer we can make air travel in terms of perception as well as reality, uh, the more people are going to be ready to get back in the air. Okay, three points to make, and I'm wrapping this up. Number one, we don't make policy that limits our freedom, that forces us to get a COVID test within a certain number of days or get a vaccine in order to be able to travel because other people might feel better. He's floating that as a reason that this policy might go in place. Floating it as a reason. Number two, how similar does this sound to what you just heard Helen Raleigh talking about in China, where they have a, a system that says you must, a social credit system that scores you in all sorts of things and says, because you did something wrong, some, you, know, you got a bad score here, you're gonna be forced uh, to, your kids can't go as good as school, you can't get a, a loan, you can't travel. This idea of the government in China doing that is offensive, but it lives in China because this is what happens under totalitarian government. This does not belong in America. It does not belong in America. I do understand there are people who would say, but this is, an, this is an exception. This is a unique time. We've just gone through a pandemic. This justifies it. You know, normally we wouldn't have the government making rules about who can travel. Remind yourself, step back and think about, in America, everyone has been permitted to travel among the 50 states, or if you're Barack Obama, 57 states, but back to 50, you've been able to travel among the 50 states back and forth all day long. You can fly, you can drive. No one asks you for a passport. No one asks you for your papers. No one asks you for anything. It is presumed we are Americans. We are Americans and we're allowed to travel freely and we don't have check stations around our country. Now you might say, yeah, but you know, we have this coronavirus thing and we have to make sure a sufficient percentage of Americans got the vaccine. We have to make sure we have tests and all this. And they keep saying this, despite the fact more and more and more evidence emerges 
of treatments that are effective that are effective in treating the coronavirus. We have had many shows on this in my show. We have another person coming up, another doctor reached out to me, said, I want to come on your show and tell you, tell people how you can't. There are many effective remedies. We have overreacted to coronavirus. We had effective remedies we weren't using. But the third point I want to make about how dangerous this is, is because it's a slippery slope thing. So now I say, well, okay, but we had a pandemic, so everyone's going to have to, you know, follow the, the uh, passport to be able to travel, the COVID passport. You're going to have to have either the vaccine or proof of a negative test or something else. And it's just for this one emergency, but it'll never be for just this emergency. It'll be because the next virus comes along and maybe be the next iteration of the coronavirus or some new virus or some other new health threat. So then a new set of requirements will be in place and a new set of requirements will, de will determine whether you can leave your house, whether you can get on an airplane or a train or a bus or go or even drive. There'll always be another emergency. There will always be another emergency, even in the, in the virus world. And then imagine when the Green New Deal whatever finally emerges from Congress, how the Green New Deal comes along. There's already been talk about the idea, very similar to a Chinese social credit score where people are assessed as to whether or not they are complying with a Green New Deal requirements. And so, you know, is your home kept at the right temperature in the summer and in the winter? Is your car sufficient, uh, you know, in terms of whether it guzzles gas or is it sufficiently modern and, mo and is a hybrid or maybe it's all electric? are the kinds of behaviors you've engaged in, the place you live. The Green New Deal is a rich, fertile, endless, uh, rich and fertile source of endless, endless new regulation and control over your freedom. You, you got to cut it off now. This whole notion of the slippery slope, we're going to let just this one little thing come in and we're going to have to have the federal government requiring, you know, a, a COVID passport, proof of vaccination, uh, dates of your vaccination, proof of, of your negative test or whatever other things are require. It's a horrible slippery slope for America to go down. A horrible slippery slope. And this guy grinning, Pete Buttigieg grinning into the camera saying, yeah, it's going to be science. You know, science, these are the same people claiming to be science who said that hydroxychloroquine didn't work. And now many, many people, including CDC, are saying, well, actually, it turns out it does work. Very effective in treating coronavirus. Same with ivermectin. Same with inhaled budesonide. Same with other treatments that have been available all along. The same scientists who said you can't use them and they're ineffective and stop talking about them and punishing doctors for even talking about them. Those same people are the ones making these rules and deciding whether or not you can travel. And friends, we just need to resist now the idea of going down that slope of becoming a country very similar and this show me your papers uh, mindset which emerged, of course, in many totalitarian countries where the government decides who can travel, when they can travel, what your paper says, and whether or not you're permitted to get on that plane, train, or bus, or you have to go back home. This does not belong in America. I close out the show every day by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. And so we start our show this today, uh, it seems like a long time ago. Impeachment is just the beginning. There is no way, no way, the second impeachment would be proceeding if the uniparty ruling class had any respect whatsoever for the 75 million plus Americans who voted for President Trump. This impeachment is going on because the Congress, the people involved in Washington are telling you, the American people, 
We, you know, Trump is gone, and we do not care about all of you who voted for him. The January 6th Trump caused the riots justification is not holding up. Meadows confirms Trump urged 10,000 troops be deployed prior to January 6th. The D.C. mayor and the, D the uh, Capitol Police turned it down. Numerous on-site videos raised serious questions about pre-planning of January 6th. Also questions about who are the provocateurs, who are pushing this that weren't the Trump supporters. Capitol Police chief confirms intelligence warnings ahead of January 6th, but officials refuse his requests for military help. And on, also, still on the impeachment, this is just the beginning, the latest New York Times spin is all about Trumpian style, which describes dog whistles and other coded messages to almost any tweet or other statement made by Trump or his supporters, such as fight for your country or be a warrior for America. Liz Cheney is championing this spin, supports investigation of everything Trump ever said that, in effect, opposed the mainstream media narrative of there is no evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 elections. Liz Cheney was recently re-elected by the GOP House leadership, by the GOP, if you don't recognize that, GOPE, small e is the establishment. This tells you where the Republicans stand, by the way. They're fine with Liz Cheney trying to impeach a Republican president, and the Republicans kept her in leadership in the House. Think about that. The second impeachment is all about sending a message to Americans who supported the Trump agenda, don't ever challenge the ruling elites, and don't think that the Trump agenda has any future in America. America was founded in defiance of a similar warning from King George and the ruling monarchy. And finally, show me your COVID papers. Uh, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg well on the way to requiring proof of vaccination as a condition to interstate travel. It'll make all travels, travelers feel safer. Many Americans will shrug this off as necessary under the circumstances, but is there a slippery slope? Will Americans continue to shrug it off for the next virus and the next virus and vaccine? And who decides that? Rumors of climate change lockdowns already happening, mileage limitations for fossil fueled cars, controls and air conditioning usage. Will Americans shrug those off too? America was founded on the idea of individual freedom and responsibility. Government control of health and travel and climate necessarily erodes individual freedom. Will Americans give up their freedom because experts say so? And that, my very fine friends, is my show for today. Very quick reminders at the close of the show. Go to my website, americacanwetalk.org. You can hit subscribe, get my weekly newsletter. You can hit donate. You can donate to support this show. One time or recurring donations, deeply appreciated. I want to give a special note. I've been, I, I have many emails backed up of new subscribers. I'm trying to catch up on them. And I want to mention one thing. I have people, very, very, just so sweet and supportive uh, listeners who've asked me if I can call them, they want to talk to me, or who've asked if we can meet, or who've asked if they can uh, work for me in some way. I just want to tell you, I, I am touched beyond words. I, I, I have to really draw a line and say, I, you know, I will, we, we have a special membership, that, membership thing coming up, I'll mention in a moment, and uh, that is a great way to have more direct communication, but I really don't call our listeners or, um, uh, you know, it's just, uh, Speak, it's a slippery slope thing. You know, it's probably smarter to do my show and engage with you on this show. But I do have a membership thing coming up and it's going to be starting in April. I know I said, I think I said March before, but it's going to be starting in April. It's a great thing. It'll be up on our website soon, americachemitalk.org. It's going to be come on this show on Thursdays of every week. 
The Thursday show is going to be a members-only show. It's going to be a much more interactive show. People are putting in questions. And it's going to be a conversation between you, the members of America Can We Talk, and me, and possibly a guest, and possibly Matt, the wonderful producer, will be with me. It'll be a conversation. So the Thursday show, starting in April, it's going to be a members-only show. It's a conversation between and among us who love this precious country. So that's coming up. I want to urge you also, if you're listening to this show, on YouTube, on Facebook, or on Twitter, please go to our website. Recognize you can watch the show on the website, americacanwetalk.org. Show is live there. Subscribe to the newsletter. And the reason I'm urging that is because I do think that we're going to have a potential for having this show taken down. And I don't want to lose contact with all the listeners to this show. I so appreciate you. I want to be sure we can stay in touch. And Matt, I didn't ask Matt the wonderful, he can pull this up, but I have a slide. There's one slide I wanted to show you about how you can submit a text message and stay in regular touch with, with this show. You can text 53445. There you go, Matt the Wonderful. So if you go to your texting function on your phone, go to the two line and enter 53445 and put in the message part America. That's another way to stay in touch. I have a I, I have the word America. That's my it only comes to me. It comes to my account. And I have not yet, even though we're having listeners doing this more and more, I've not yet sent one single text. But I will be sending you texts about upcoming guests and new ways to find us on social media. There, we have an account on Rumble now, rumble.com. You can go there too. I'm saying all this at the end of the show because as social media censorship grows, it is growing. I don't want to lose one of you. I love talking with you about preserving America. I want to be sure we can continue to talk about preserving America in this era where many millions of people are deeply concerned about the future of liberty in America. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. Every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time, I do this show to talk to you, to talk to everyone who wants to be part of the conversation about preserving America, the greatest gift to the, to, to the earth, the greatest gift of human liberty ever to bless this earth. Debbie Georgettis, America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can